0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of your Law Podcast. This is your host, Ozzy V, and with me as always on this program is the one with the power, the one with the knowledge. Rather, it's knowledge, the one with the power, because knowledge <laughs> is power. Andre Verdun, attorney at law. How you doing, Ozzy? I'm good. I'm fine. How are like, you doing? I yeah, mean, I'm last not, week you mentioned it was a sniffly <laughs> episode, and we had a little exchange. I was like, "Could it be the thing," and you're like, nah, it's not the thing." And it turned out it was, um, uh, it was the thing. Yes, I had the thing. I had the, the thing. The I thing being you. COVID. Just in case yes. anybody isn't following. So, how are you that, feeling now?
1: I feel like I got hit by a semi truck. I tell you, the COVID thing is nothing to joke about. It's, I mean. I don't joke about it. I could tell you for uh, anyone that really knows me knows that I have taken the COVID situation very seriously. I have mostly stayed in my home. If I leave my home, it's with a mask, it's with sanitizer. I've had refused to allow numerous friends into my house out of fear of contracting COVID. So when we talked last week, I was certain that there was no way I, I could have contracted it. And I did do a same day test and it came back negative, but the actual test, the one where they call you a day or two actually came back positive. So uh, I got Mm -hmm. tested again and it was positive. Then unfortunately, everyone that I live with who was sheltered in place with me all contracted COVID. So Mm -hmm. uh, we live in a, yeah, it's, it's been, fortunately out of everybody, I got the sickest because I I really wouldn't want anyone to go through that because, you know. I never really got a bad cough a little bit, but not a bad one. But I tell you the muscle aches just laying in bed and just your whole body just feels like probably one of the worst wrestling matches I ever been in. And then you wake up the next day and you just everything on you hurts. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what I've been going through. But I think I'm coming out of it now. It's been about 10 days since I first started with the symptoms. So,
0: yeah, I guess it wasn't just the sniffles. <laughs> It wasn't just the sniffles. Now, what's interesting is you mentioned hand sanitizer, and I don't know if maybe there was some viral uh, thing that happened, because it, it was in Australia earlier this year that there was uh, eight eight or nine bottles of hand sanitizer that were sold. However, in them was actually gin, because it turns out a lot of distilling factories sw- uh, were able to switch to packaging mm. hand sanitizer. So there were some mix-ups there, and so maybe you got one of these gin hand sanitizers, so you were putting gin on your hands, thinking it was sanitizer, but, you know, all that happened were your hands getting drunk.
1: Maybe. Uh, i actually been using this organic hand sanitizer French lavender.
0: We, we don't need to go into detail. They're not paying us, are they? <laughs> I don't think
1: they are. But okay, uh...
0: well, good luck to that uh, whatever <laughs> hand sanitizer you do want us to mention you, you can pay us. But anyway, (laughs) moving on to the program this week is an interesting topic that we'll get to in just a moment. Dealing with ways the uh, parking violations are enforced. But real quick, we did have a question that was sent to us a couple of weeks ago in terms of a, a tenant program for the county of Los Angeles that would aid up to $1,000, I believe, towards rent, and this particular landlord was unable to accept the money because they weren't part of a lawsuit, and if they took the money, they would no longer be able to be part of the lawsuit. And we pretty much came to, well, I shouldn't say we, I'm just the host here. You're the lawyer, but as we talked about it, we're kind of just in a wait-and-see moment right now because it sounds like, obviously, landlords would want the money, But there's terms that are attached to the money, being a city program, that they obviously have a problem with. So we kind of have to wait until that's finished out. Is that right? Yeah.
1: So when we originally talked about it, my statement was, well, if, if it's money free and clear, they have to accept it. Refusal to accept it could be a defense to a UD action. And then we got some more information and found out that the money actually has terms attached to it. It requires that the landlord not raise rent for a certain amount of time and not charge late fees, which we know here, late fees aren't legal anyway. (laughs) But uh, with the terms that the landlord could not raise the rent for, I think it's a year, that creates a condition that would not require the landlord to have to accept it. However, as you mentioned, there seems to be a lawsuit going right now regarding whether landlords can accept this money without having to accept any terms. And then from what I can tell, Los Angeles may be rethinking whether or not they want to put these terms as part of the the money. And so right now we're just kind of waiting and seeing and if I learn anything or you learn anything, we'll certainly let people know as far as whether LA changes the terms. And I'll be keeping an eye on the lawsuit
0: to see if there's any changes on that end. Gotcha. Now, about this week's episode. To kick things off, you sent me an article. This came from the La Jolla Light. Headline was San Diego Police Using New System for Detecting Parking Violations After City is Sued Over Chalking Tires. And what's also interesting about this article is that I did not mention now, while you are not as an attorney linked to this article, you are the main plaintiff. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So even before I was a
1: lawyer or even in law school, I had this pet peeve about police officers putting chalk on my tire when I park a car on the city sidewalk, or not on the sidewalk, but on the city street, you know, next to the sidewalk. I've had this like ongoing conversation with parking enforcement officers for years in different cities about their right to chalk my tires and how I don't think they have a legal ability under the fourth amendment to do that. And then as I get to law school, my opinion on that was kind of changed. But then it changed again because of a, of a recent case. And we'll get to the case law in a minute. But how I got involved in being the plaintiff in this case, I was uh, actually at my office one day and I went to my office just to get mail and come back. So I was only on the street for about 15 minutes and I see a chalk mark on my tire and I happened to have my iPad with me. So I pull out my iPad and I snapped the picture of it and I said, I'm going to sue these, these people. And of course, it's one of those things, I don't know if you're as What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, where you, you get all excited about something in the minute, and then like 15 minutes later, you're like, yeah, I'm never going to do anything about that.
0: In my experience, it's being Aussie. It's <laughs> not, well, my friend, just Aussie, stop being Aussie. You're going to forget about it in 15 minutes.
1: Yeah, Dang. well, I'm Aussie all the time. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I saw this, and I was all mad about it. So I took a picture. I said, this time I'm going to sue the city of San Diego. And then, of course, 20 minutes later, it was out of my mind. Mm-hmm. The next day... I was going back to my office and there's a lot of lawyers that work out of the building that I work out of. And I ran to a lawyer that him and I are always talking about bringing cases together. And, uh, he's actually one of those guys who always wants to be on the cutting edge. So he's always looking for new ways to bring lawsuits. And I like that. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking about something. I said, you know what you should do? You should sue the city of San Diego for chalking my tires. And so then I, I kind of went through my legal theory that we'll discuss here today, and he said that sounds great. Let's do it as a, as together. And I said no 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 no. I'm way too busy. I, I'm not even sure if this is gonna work. But if you want to do it, I'll be your plaintiff. I mean, what better plaintiff than a lawyer that actually teaches criminal procedural law, which is constitutional law in the criminal context? So he he said he wanted to do it, and then he went and found another uh, lawyer to do it, and then I became the plaintiff. And this is actually a couple years ago. I kind of forgot about. I know it sounds kind of weird. I, I, I'm i always doing my own cases, so I'm not thinking about this case. But it came across my newsfeed, and so I saw it. and That's why I forwarded it over to you. But the interesting thing is a couple weeks after I agreed to do this, the 11th Circuit came out and said that chalking tires was, in fact, a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So it seems like this theory that I've had for a while is now actually becoming something that's taking traction in
0: the courts. Now, this jumps on the Fourth Amendment, where it states the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched, and the persons or things to be seized. Which also, I think, counts as the longest run-on sentence I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well,
1: there's some other clauses of the constitution that actually might run on a little more
0: but that's a fair point
1: so uh yeah that's the fourth amendment I, this is actually what we're we're studying in my law school class right now so good job reciting that some of my students will probably listen in on this because we're going to be reviewing some of the materials that they're going to study on their uh, midterms or they're going to be tested on oh. on their midterms so the Constitution, as you just read, it kind of deals with a couple things. It talks about what's protected and when a warrant must be issued. But we're only worried about the part of that phrase that states that the right of the people to be secured against unreasonable searches
0: uh, as it relates to their facts. Now, so when we mention effects, uh, this in this case can be the tire and the tire shouldn't be, for lack of a better term, messed with. Or modified without a (laughs) warrant, technically. Now, the theme of the article and what we're going to be dealing with today is the portion of the Constitution that states the right of the people against unreasonable searches. To begin talking about this, we're going to talk about a high-profile case where a police officer was operating the nation's largest bootleg operation during Prohibition. The police went into the basement of his building and used a device to record his telephone calls and there was not a lot of case law on what is a search before 1928 and this was the year that it happened it was a, a uncharted territory so to speak so an individual named Olmsted brought an appeal asking the court to find that he was illegally searched and to reverse the conviction and the specific case was Olmsted v United States 277 US 438 the supreme court of the united states reviewed whether the use of wiretapped private telephone conversations constituted a violation of the defendant's rights provided by the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. The court held that because the police wiretapped the phone from the basement of the building, there was no search by the government because a search required a physical intrusion on a constitutionally protected place. The government did not commit a physical intrusion on Olmstead's home.
1: So in the Olmstead case, the court was had to deal with this question of what is a search. Now, 1928 may seem recent in time, considering when the Constitution was written ratified, and ratified and where we're at today. But actually, by 1928, there hadn't been, as you mentioned, a lot of case law describing what a search is. There was one case in 1911, the Weeks case, Weeks versus United States, where it was addressed a little bit. But this 1928 case was the first case where the Supreme Court said, what is a search as defined by the Constitution? And they decided that in order for there to be a search, there has to be a physical intrusion on a constitutionally protected place. So what does that mean? It means that you actually have to enter someone's property. Here, what the police did was they, and they had the consent of the building owners to go into the basement of a building where Olmstead was working, and they actually sliced into his phone line and put a recording device on the line, which allowed them to record all of his phone calls. So Olmstead gets convicted. He goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, and he says, Court, this is a search. What they did was they intercepted through the phone lines all the conversations that I was having in my office. And... My office is a constitutionally protected place, and therefore the use of technology shouldn't allow them, allow the government to be able to use technology to search in a way that previously you had to do through an actual intrusion on the property. And the Supreme Court rejected that argument in 1928, and they said that in order for the government to actually conduct a search under the Fourth Amendment, they have to physically enter a constitutionally protected place. They have to enter your office. They have to enter your car. And it, without that, there's, there's no search. So because of the fact that the police officers were able to use technology to listen to the phone calls without actually entering his office, these calls were not a search. And therefore, they didn't require probable cause or a warrant. And so the, the conviction was upheld.
0: And moving along down the timeline closer to 1967, the individual was recorded in a phone booth without physical intrusion. And the Supreme Court held in Katz v. United States 389 U.S. 347 in 1967 that, quote, the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places, end quote. In Katz, Justice Harlan created the Reasonable Expectation of Privacy Test, which is a two-part test that asks, one, did an individual exhibit an actual, which is subjective, expectation of privacy? And two, whether the expectation is one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable.
1: So the Supreme Court comes in 1967. They decide the Katz case. And as you mentioned, this is a case where an individual is using a phone booth. He goes inside, closes the door behind him. If you're under 30, you're probably wondering what a phone booth is. (laughs) Should, Should we explain? To the listeners, uh, what a phone
0: uh, booth is? I, you know, just in case there's somebody fresh out of high school. So, a phone booth would be a small personal space, a booth. Uh, check out old Superman cartoons. <laughs> That's, what say, Superman That's cartoon. like the only thing I could think of. Uh, it was a small enclosed case or Anchorman. I'm in a glass case of emotion. That scene happens in a phone booth. Glass case where you can use a phone, supposed to give you privacy.
1: Correct continue, and so
0: yeah,
1: an old phone booth was actually it, it had five sides, right, and and the ground and so you go inside, you close the door, you pay your money, and the idea was no one could hear what you're saying. So here, the federal police officers were able to use a device that from outside the phone booth was able to listen in and record the conversation of Mister Katz inside the phone booth. And the prosecutors argue that this was not a search because there wasn't an actual intrusion. As was required in Olmstead, and therefore cats couldn't complain that even if they could if cats if could argue that a phone booth is a constitutionally protected place, that without the physical intrusion, there wasn't a search, so cats in a five four decision comes to the conclusion that the Constitution doesn't just protect people when there's a physical intrusion but They came up with this concept that you mentioned, that the Constitution protects people, not places, which means everywhere you go, you have an expectation of privacy over anything that you exert a privacy right over. So, for example, if you were to carry a trash bag down the street that anyone could see through, you would not have an expectation of privacy to that bag because you could simply see what's inside of it with your naked eye. But uh, if you were to carry a black bag that you put things in simply because you didn't want no one to see what was inside of it. That would be an objective effort. I'm sorry, a subjective effort to protect the contents of that bag. And if society would respect that someone carrying a bag on the street would not have that privacy right infringed, then the government would, or the Supreme Court would, hold that there's a privacy interest over that item. So yes. the reason why this is important, though, is because from 19... 19- 67 until 2012, it was believed that this CATS rule, this reasonable expectation of privacy test, replaced Olmstead. So there was no longer required to be an, a physical trespass on a protected space. That rule actually leaves the textbook uh, in recent years. The textbook that I was teaching my class out of didn't even talk about Olmstead. I had to actually have them go to Westlaw and print it out because If it was taught, it was only taught from a historical perspective. But then in 2012, things kind of changed.
0: In that particular case was United States v. Jones 565 U.S. 400, again in 2012, where the Supreme Court held that placing a GPS tracking device on a vehicle without a warrant and tracking the whereabouts of a car for 28 days was a search. Justice Scalia wrote that the government's physical intrusion on an effect, in this case, the car for the purpose of obtaining information constitutes a search.
1: So what's really interesting about Jones is it actually found a search on the same premise as Olmstead found that there was no search back in 1928. So what, Scalia says in, in Jones and then another case that came down, uh, it's really complicated. It deals with curtilages and homes, so we won't get into the case. But with Jones and the, the subsequent case, what Scalia said was Katz is the law, but Katz doesn't replace Olmstead. It's an alternative way for a person who's claiming that they were searched to show that a search took place. So going back to the chalk situation, there's no way that I could say that I enjoy a reasonable expectation of privacy to my car when it's sitting on a, on a public sidewalk because I didn't do anything to hide it. I, I took my car and I parked it on a city street and I left it there and anyone walking by can see the car. So if I was to say, oh, marking my tire was a search," I would lose because I wouldn't be able to show objectively how I intended to hide it from other people who are just walking by, and then I would probably fail because I would not be able to show that subjectively society would want to protect that privacy interest. But when you apply the Olmstead test, which they applied in Jones, then you have something. Because the problem with Jones, the reason why the government in Jones said that there wasn't a search when the police officers put a GPS device on a vehicle was because a person driving a vehicle on a city street, they don't enjoy a reasonable expectation of privacy because anyone can see them driving down the street. And unless they did something to prevent people from seeing them, which I don't know how you could do that and still drive, then you're not objectively doing anything to protect your privacy interests as to where you're going. And this is why police surveillance is legal. Even after Jones, it's legal for a police officer to trail a person because they're on a public street no expi- mm. expectation of privacy. But what Scalia said was when law enforcement took a GPS device and placed it under a vehicle, that was a physical intrusion. That was actually committing a trespass on someone's property interest. So when you use the Olmsted test, it doesn't matter whether or not the person who's being searched made an ab- Uh, a subjective effort to protect their privacy interests. It doesn't really matter if society is willing to protect that interest, like in cats. Instead, all that it requires is there being an intrusion on a protected place. The Constitution says that effects is a protected place. An effect is your car. So with an intrusion taking place on a constitution-protected place, like a car, now you have a search. And so then the next step is If the police officers want to perform a search, what's required? And what the law says is that in order for there to be a search on a protected place, a police officer must have probable cause.
0: And probable cause is defined by law as facts and circumstances, which known to a reasonable police officer would lead a police officer to believe that there is evidence of a crime in a place to be searched.
1: So going back to the chalk situation, if we apply the Olmstead test, it would seem that there's a search because you got a car, and the chalk is a trespass. So you got a car, which is an effect. You have the chalk, which is the trespass. So now you have a search. So in order for that chalking to be legal, you have to have, and by you I mean the police officer has to have probable cause, which is like you mentioned facts or circumstances that would lead that police officer to admit that there's uh, evidence of a crime by before he marks the tire. And if the officer doesn't have probable cause to believe that that vehicle is somehow involved in criminal activity, he's violating the Fourth Amendment. So in the class action, what we've done is we've sued uh, several cities, San Diego being one of them. And what we're saying is, is that If police officers are walking down the street and they're just marking every single tire on the street without any uh, reason to believe that those vehicles are overstayed the two hour time limit, then they're actually invading the constitutional space of the vehicle without probable cause and therefore violating the constitutional rights of every single person who has their car parked on the street and had their car marked. And so what we're saying is that they either need to come up with a way to determine if these cars are on the streets for more than two hours it doesn't require them to touch the vehicle or they have to have at least a uh, probable cause, some types of facts or circumstances to believe a vehicle's been parked for more than two hours before they touch it
0: so in your situation that you mentioned earlier, you said you were in you're in your office for about twenty minutes or so, and that's when you noticed the chalk there. So if it had been something closer to three hours, you wouldn't have been you probably wouldn't have been as energized, for lack of a better term about it, Uh, because in that case, one could argue that the officer did have probable cause.
1: They could. Through my conversations with police officers, and this is in San Diego and other counties as well, I've asked them, like, why are you marking all these tires? Did you come by here and make any notes of any of these cars having been here? And they've told me over and over again, this is our practice. This is our protocol. What we do is we drive down the streets for an hour, we mark all these vehicles, and then once we get done marking vehicles, we go back and we start ticketing. And so I would argue that even if my car was parked for three hours on a sidewalk, it's still not permissible for a police officer to mark it unless they have actual facts or something that makes them believe that my particular car was on the road for more than two hours. And so if they're still just using this ad hoc marking system where we just mark everything, then I think it's illegal. And so it's the policy that we're after, a policy that, you know, this is not as extreme, but it's along the same lines as New York's stop and frisk program that they were employing, I think under Mayor Bloomberg, where they admitted that their policy was to stop everybody and search everybody. No reason to believe they committed a crime. No reason to think that they might commit a crime. Just because they want to get crime under control, they're going to stop and frisk everybody. And as we saw, uh, at least in the stop and frisk program, there were minorities that were targeted and it, it made that situation so much more egregious. But again, I teach criminal procedure, which is criminal constitutional law, and I really take government intrusion on the rights of people. Seriously. And I, you know, we could talk about Miranda in a future episode, but it's my firm belief under Miranda v. Arizona that when a person is pulled over for speeding, that a police officer should have to read you your Miranda rights before they ask you how fast you're going. And, you know, we can talk about We probably should do an episode on what to do if you get pulled over by a police officer because absolutely, there's a lot of rights that people have there that they're not aware of. And one of them is you don't have to answer those questions. And you shouldn't answer those questions. But in much the way that Miranda has been diluted, starting with traffic citations, and I think will continue to get diluted, it's my firm belief that when it comes to the Fourth Amendment, we have to take this extreme approach of you can't even chalk tires on the side of the road if you don't have a probable cause to believe that car is in a crime, because you are intruding, physically intruding on a constantly protected uh, effect, and the Fourth Amendment prohibits that. It prohibits the government from stopping people on the sidewalk and searching them just because they're in a high crime area. Just like I believe, And we'll see what the case comes down to. The, the article that you read was not a victory article. What they've said is, is that pending the litigation, the city of San Diego is going to use a different method to, as we argue they should, to determine that people are overstaying the two hours that doesn't require them to mark or touch a vehicle. I have no problem with that. Well, I do have a problem with them physically marking cars. And if we win this case, I suspect that at some point it may go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And this may become a law of all the land, all across the country that it's illegal to touch someone's car if you have no reason to believe that the vehicle has overstayed the parking time limit.
0: That's definitely going to be definitely going to be an article of interest when that conclusion is reached. Now, we have reached all the time we have for this week. Before we head out, Andre, now we do have the questions. If you want any of them to be sent to yourlawpod at gmail.com, we could possibly answer them on the show. Other than that, anything else you wanted to add before we head out for this week? It is Thanksgiving this week. Of course, obviously, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Stay safe, of course.
1: Yeah, I just say that if you're out doing anything, put a mask on, wear gloves, be safe, because this stuff is gnarly. And uh, if you get it, I hope you recover quickly. Anyone out there.
0: Absolutely. And I did mention the email yourlawpod at gmail.com and the law office of Andre Verdun. In case you're interested, facebook.com forward slash Verdun law and email direct would be office at Verdun law.com. And next week's episode, we will be talking about what rights you have when you are pulled over at a traffic stop. Very interesting information that we'll have ready for you next week. And once again, he is California Attorney at Law, Andre Verdun, and I'm Ozzy V. We'll see you next week right here on your Law Podcast.